Okay, all right. So I apologize. I just have to do something else today. So uh, again, we began discussing a new unit. We kind of finished uh, reproduction and abortion and Mm -hmm. contraception, and maybe we're moving backwards into marriage. And uh, because rest Hashem, it'll be something that uh, you will all uh, experience in a good in a good time in a good way. but uh, I want to go over some of the uh, structure of the ceremony again so you'll understand a little bit more. Uh, you do have to understand a very, very important chiluk, a very important difference between the halacha of the ceremony and the minhagim of the ceremony. Now, it's true that marriage has many, many minhagim. And those minhagim are very important. They're rooted in Kabbalah, and if you're they're rooted in Hasidus. And these customs are extremely important. But uh, it, also, it also is important when you learn Torah that you differentiate between what halacha absolutely requires and what's considered an extra thing. So something like the badekin, which I'll talk about, where the kalas uh, is veiled, her face is covered, that's a very, very important minhag, but a marriage is absolutely valid even without a badekin. So a badekin is not halachically required, Again, don't misinterpret me. Uh, you obviously should have it, but it's not a halachic requirement. It's a getter of a minhag. And certainly things like the Kabbalah's panim, the chasan's tish, and the kalah's you know, these are very, very nice things. Uh, but obviously halacha doesn't require it. You know, some person has to get married without any of those things. It could still be a valid uh, marriage. And certainly all of the pre-wedding stuff, vorts and l'chaim, now they have so many different types of <laughs> madregos now, uh, all of that is, you know, uh, again, it's a min, a minug is minug, so you don't laugh at it, but, you know, uh, you could have a valid, kosher, beautiful marriage even without a vort and a l'chaim and all of those other, all of those other things. Okay. The so, thing after the badekin, you said one more thing that was a minug. Uh, did I mention something after the Bedekin? I don't, I don't know if I mentioned something after the Bedekin. But, uh, but, but, so, so what are the halakhic requirements? So number one, there is a halakhic requirement that marriage take place with a minion of people. Now even that, it's a little funny. On one hand, it is a halakhic requirement, but it does not affect the validity of the marriage. In other words, halakhically, I am obligated to have a minion. But if I got married with two witnesses without a minion, it would still be a valid marriage. So even halacha sometimes doesn't passel, doesn't invalidate the marriage b'diyevet. But there is a halacha that you have to have a minion, and by a minion we mean, of course, ten men. But the chassan and the rabbi who's Masad or Kedushin, they can count for the minion. So you really need uh, the rabbi, the chassan, and at least eight other men. Uh, the men can be related. Unlike witnesses, there's no psul with having, you know, so, so if you have a family, you can make a very small wedding uh, with just members of your family. If you have enough brothers, enough uncles, or what, what, enough cousins, whatever it would be. So that's one rule, that you, there has to be a minion uh, for a wedding. Yeah. When you say related, like, like blood-related, like say someone has an uncle and it's their sister's husband. Yeah, so the general rule is this. The general rule is anyone that is married to a blood relative is, is disqualified for a witness. So, okay. so, so, uh, yeah, right, so the, the husband of uh, your father's uh, sister could not be a kosher witness. Okay, okay. Now... Could not? No, could not, because relatives... Well, well they could be part of the minion, that's right. for sure, but they cannot be a kosher witness. Okay, so number one, you need a minion, okay? 
Number two, you need two kosher witnesses. By kosher witnesses, again, let me uh, explain. The witnesses have to be men. Again, I apologize. Uh, the witnesses have to be Jewish, of course. The witnesses have to be above bar mitzvah. And most importantly, the witnesses have to be halachically observant, which basically means, basically, I mean, they don't have to be the tzaddikim of the world, but basically they have to be Shomer Shabbos and Kashras uh, and Davin every day, things like that. Okay, so if witnesses are related to the Chassan or the Kala, or if they are related to each other, they are also not kosher. Okay, and these are the single most important thing you need at a wedding because unlike the minion, which if you didn't have a minion, the wedding would be kosher, it would be valid, uh, a wedding without kosher witnesses is totally invalid, meaning it's not a marriage at, at, at all. Okay, so assuming we have the requisite minion and assuming we have the requisite kosher witnesses, okay, uh, two witnesses, so at this point, we have the two, I'm reviewing a little bit, we have the two ceremonies, the Erusin ceremony and the Nisuin ceremony. And in a Jewish wedding today, again, I'm reviewing, Erusin and Nisuin occur the same night. In the time of Archachamim and in time of the Torah, even earlier, Erusin and Nisuin were separated by 12 months. Today, they're separated by around 12 minutes, uh, by and large. Uh, now, do, do not confuse modern Hebrew with halachic terminology. Modern Hebrew also has a, has a term called erusin. But erusin in Ivrit, erusin in modern Hebrew just means engagement. You get engaged, that's called erusin. In fact, the Israeli word for a vort or a l'chaim is called erusin. That, that's what they call it. Uh, but that's not what the Torah means by the term, and that's not what the Gemara means by the term. Erusin is the giving of the ring by the chasen to the kala in front of the witnesses, declaring, hare at mekudeshesli, you are married to me, you are sanctified to me, b'tabasu, with this ring. Kidas Moshe Yisrael, according to the laws of Moshe and Yisrael, and from that moment on, she is a married woman. Erison means she is a 100% married woman, but in, as soon as the ring, as soon as the ring is on her finger, but it used to be that the marriage was not consummated for a whole year. She would still live at home or, or whatever it would be. So if you would be at a wedding, in fact, they didn't even make a big, they didn't make a big simcha. The chasna was saved for the nesuin. But if you would be at a, at a wedding a thousand years ago, uh, you would see the chasna give the kala a ring in front of two witnesses, and that would be it. End of wedding. There wouldn't even be a big meal at that point. And she would then go home. But she was a married woman. Now, you understand why modern Hebrew looks at that as an engagement, because it resembles an engagement. It does resemble an engagement. I, I admit to you that. But it's not an engagement. If she, uh, for example, wants to leave or he wants to uh, not consummate, he has to give her a get. It is a full marriage. But he's not yet obligated to support her uh, because she's still kind of uh, under her father's uh, guidance and the like. And if she would die, he would not inherit her. Can they see each other during so they can see each other, uh, but uh, they cannot be alone with each other because of the fear 
that they might, uh, you know. Uh, what have. was the point of that? So, so here's the point. The original point seems to be an economic point, meaning to say a woman was expected to bring in a substantial dowry, and therefore she was given up to a year to accumulate what she needed to accumulate. Now, the halach, okay, let me make a point. Even when you had that year, that year was a maximum, meaning to say, if they wanted to do Nisuin faster, they could do it, but either she or her husband had the right to delay it for a year. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, instead of saying it had to be a year, it's more accurate to say the delay was permitted up to a year, mm-hmm. but by mutual consent, they could make it, uh, they could make it earlier. Okay, so the heiress part of the marriage is simply the giving of the ring. And you'll recall in the ceremony that the giving of the ring is preceded by two brachos. And here we have the role of the rabbi who is misader kedushin. Misader kedushin just means the rabbi who supervises the marriage. Okay, meaning he doesn't, again, it's, it's interesting to note, note the difference here. Do you need a Masada Kedushin? That, that's an interesting question. Uh, meaning, the, the marriage is affected by the chassan giving the kala a ring. She accepts the ring. And he says the words, Hariyat Magadashasli. Now this can happen, sometimes we have shyness like this. This can happen on a playground. This can happen in the middle of the street. In other words, technically, you don't need a rabbi to make a marriage valid. However, the same way that the, that the halacha says you, sh- you should have a minion, so too there is an enactment that there should be a Talmud Chacham or a person that's knowledgeable in halacha, but it's very different than a priest. Let's, let's compare the difference, between a ra- the difference between a rabbi at a wedding, at a Jewish chasna, and a priest at a uh, non-Jewish wedding. A priest at a non-Jewish wedding is necessary in order for the marriage to be religiously valid. If a priest is not at a Catholic wedding, it's not a Catholic wedding. They are not married in the eyes of the Catholic Church. It is the priest that marries them. The priest marries them. Under Judaism, the rabbi does not marry you the rabbi is supervising that the chassan and the kala did the things they need to do. So really, the way the halacha is structured, it's the chassan and the kala who marry themselves. And the rabbi is like a mashkiach, just like you have a mashkiach in a kitchen or a mashkiach in a restaurant. A masader kedushin is a mashkiach. You see, that's an important difference. He does not marry them. He is simply there in a supervisory capacity. Nevertheless, in the hierarchy of honors at a wedding, all right, so the biggest honor is uh, the one who gets to be Masada Kedushin. As I say, that's a question of simply uh, who, do you, who do you choose to honor, okay? Um, in the early years, when the Rebbe was, uh, before Chabad grew so gigantic, uh, the Rebbe himself uh, used to be Masada Kedushin, like in the 1950s, but at, at some point, uh, when you have uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the world, it wasn't Shaykh, so he would just uh, maybe wave from a window or something, he would just you know, give a bracha, but he would, not, he would not be able to go to every, every chasna. Yeah? Um, so, 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 so
this is probably a very simple answer. It, this goes back a little. So all these marriages in the United States of non-religious Jewish people that didn't have two witnesses, they're not married according to so, so this is very important, meaning, meaning there are many, 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 well, well, first of all, let me make the obvious point. Uh, intermarriage is not valid at all, meaning if a Jew and a guy are married, it's not a marriage. That's fine. But even two Jews who are married, uh, if they were not married with kosher witnesses, that's correct, they are halachically not married. Now that has good news and bad news. Good news is that if they separate without a get, that's okay. In other words, I think I mentioned a few times that a very common problem Actually, I'm not sure if I did mention it. I'm sure I did mention it uh, at least once, but I'll, I'll mention it quickly. Uh, a very big problem with Chosrei B'Tshuvah is let's imagine you were born from uh, a second marriage, but your mother never got a get from her first husband. Now, technically, that would mean that you were born from adultery. And if a person is born from adultery, they have the stigma of mamzer. Now, a mamzer is a Jew, no question, but a mamzer cannot marry anybody else other than another mamzer or a convert they can marry. Uh, and their children will be a mamzer. So mom and dad may not have cared, not mom and dad, but mom from first marriage may not have cared because they weren't religious, but what happens when you become religious and you discover all of a sudden that you might be a mamzer? That's a very, very difficult place to be. But the solution that we have is that maybe mom didn't need a get from marriage number one because if marriage number one didn't have kosher witnesses, mom was never married. So if mom was never married from, to husband number one, mom didn't need a get. And if mom didn't need a get, then the living with husband number two, which is your father, is not mom's And even if husband number two was not a kosher marriage, that's not a problem because a child born out of wedlock is not a mamzer. The only one that's a mamzer is born from adultery. So the fact that uh, you're born from a marriage that's not a halachic marriage, that does not impose any disability on you. So this is a beautiful, that's the good news. Sometimes it's good news that a marriage is not halachically valid. The bad news is it's not halachically valid, so technically the parents are living in sin. Uh, but what that would mean is that when they do tshuva, we just remarry them. That's exactly right, right? Uh, we remarry them, and uh, certainly shaluchim, shaluchim do this uh, you know, probably more than once a week. I, I don't know, it depends on where, where it is. But that's a very common point in which uh, people who have been married uh, for 50 years decide to get a Jewish kosher kosher marriage, okay? So uh, that's something that can happen a lot and uh, they can have their grandchildren come to their wedding because uh, they've been married for, married non-halachically uh, for many, many years. Okay, so, uh, yeah. About the Messiah tradition? Yeah. Is it, I thought there was uh, something that you're supposed to do that you're supposed to be married by the rub of your town? Oh, so that's, you know, th this is an interesting... You're that it's not... Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so it's like, why? So, so, you're, you're actually you're actually hitting on a on a very interesting political controversy uh, within the, within the yeshiva world. Uh, you are one hundred percent correct. In Europe, the tradition was that the cedar kedushin had to be done by the rav of the town. Of course, in the United States, there is no rav of the town. Uh, but what happened was uh, yeshiva students 
always wanted their Rosh Hashiva to do it. And uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, that was a bit of uh, an offensive offense against the rab of the town. Uh, and yet, the, the, the yeshiva boys often took the position, oh, the, my Rosh Hashiva is a much bigger Talmud Chacham than the rab of the town. So it gets into fights. I mean, there's some art, I can show you articles in which uh, great Rabbanim said it was a, that the minhag now of getting your Rosh Hashiva, the head of your yeshiva, to be Masada Kedushin is an improper uh, disrespect for the honor of the, of the rabbinate. By the way, let me just point out as well that uh, it also depends, this also depends whether it's the, whether it's the bride's family or the chasen's family, because you see, weddings are usually where the kala is. So if you would go with the rub of the town, essentially it would be the kala's family's choice, their rabbi. If you're going with Rosh Hashiva, it's going to be the chasen's choice. Right, so in addition to Rav versus Rosh Hashiva, it turns out to be a question of Chassan's choice versus Kala's choice. Because usually they get married in the place where the wife's from? Th- that happens to be, U- usually, usually, simply, well, one reason is because uh, they pay the bills, <laughs> so they get to determine where the wedding is. But not, all, not always, I mean, again, there's no, there's no halacha about that, there's no halacha where the wedding has to be, but the minag tends to be where the Kala is. Is um, there a halacha about who pays? Uh, they're actually, you know, it's interesting. In the time of the Gemara, it actually seems to have been that the whole wedding was paid for by the chassan. The chassan himself. Or the chassan, yeah, yeah, the ch- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that means or his no, not his parents, really, it was the chassan, the chassan himself. But later the custom got changed, so uh, it's really a matter of custom. And, and uh, one should never fight over this. For example, if one side has more money than the other side then uh, the side with more money should be, should be willing, whichever side it is, should be willing to pay more money. That's, that's what you do. You know, that's what you, uh, that's what you do. Uh, you don't fight over, over money. Uh, you know, today, a lot of weddings are like, not just weddings, but even afterwards, all sorts of things. Got to give them an apartment, got to give them this, got to give them that, got to give them that. It becomes like a merger of two corporations. People are like <laughs> negotiating over this. And shidduchim get broken off, uh, God forbid, because the money is not forthcoming or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, all right, but that's a, that's a whole other issue that I hope uh, you will not encounter, but it's something that people encounter. So the Arison ceremony is only one thing, the giving of a ring to the kala and the declaration of the words, Hareyat mekudeshet li betabatsu, you are married to me with this ring, Kedas Moshe of Yisrael, in accordance with the laws of Moshe and, and, and Am Yisrael. And he puts the ring on her finger. And the Kala doesn't even have to say yes. All she does is uh, stick out her finger, right index finger. The ring is on her finger. She is now a married woman. No turning back. Right? So if you have cold feet, you've got to be before that ring is on the finger. Once the ring is on the finger, you need a get uh, to get out of the marriage and, and the like. Now, the er- now, like everything else, like all mitzvahs, or most mitzvahs, are preceded by brachos, right? So here, too, there is what's called the bracha on erison. There's a bracha that is recited on this erison, on this marriage, and the bracha is recited by the Masadr Kedushin, but he's, he's reciting it on behalf of the chasen and the kala. The same way I could make Kiddush and I would say, listen to Kiddush and I'm yot motzihu. Technically, the one who should make the bracha is the chasen. But the custom is the rav, the Masada Kedushin, makes the bracha to be motzi the chasen. 
In fact, if you're ever under a chuppah and you're close enough to hear, you will hear, not always, but often, the Rav will tell the chassan, have kavana, chassan and the kala actually, have kavana that I'm reciting the bracha on your behalf. So what are the two brachos? So the bracha number one is like kiddush. You just make a bracha on wine because whenever you have happy occasions like a bris or a wedding, we, uh, we, we, we have a bracha on wine. And the second bracha is the bracha on the mitzvah of marriage. And it just ends, that Hashem has commanded us, on forbidden sexual, uh, it stresses the negative, forbidden sexual relations outside of marriage. Bracha to Hashem, Mekadesh Amo Yisrael, blessed art you Hashem, who sanctifies the Jewish people with Kedushin, with this idea of marriage. Because remember, Kedushin itself means marriage, but it also means Kedusha, sanctification, holiness. Okay, so that's Erson, that's all. At that point, she is an Arusa. Now, the Nesuin ceremony, which is part two, originally took place a year later, a whole year later, unless they agreed. And that would start with Sheva Brachos, seven Brachos, under the Chuppah, and symbolically bringing the Kala to his home, uh, which today is done by the Yichud. Right? Yichud means after the seven Brachos, they go into a private room, but technically that's supposed to symbolize not consummation, obviously it's not consummation. It symbolizes bringing his wife into a home that they share. So that's why in the Yichud room they're supposed to eat food together because eating food together, sharing a meal, is one of the ways that you show that you know, you're living together as a family right now. Okay, so the point I want to make that you don't, you don't get is that... Uh, it looks like the Sheva Brachos are the end of the Chuppah ceremony. They're not the end of the Chuppah. They're, they're the beginning of the Nesuit. Okay? Now, who recites the Sheva Brachos? So technically, technically, uh, Sheva Brachos don't have to be divided up. Technically, the Masader Kedushin can recite all Sheva Brachos, all seven Brachos. The Minog is, it's a Minog only, and only if you want to do it, is we like to honor people, uh, relatives, family, teachers. Uh, the bride, the chassan, and the kala will, you know, decide how to allocate it. Actually, their parents will also decide how to allocate mm-hmm. it. And uh, so, so the Ashkenazic minog is among Ashkenazim and among Hasidim, uh, we divide the Sheva brachos. Among Sfardim, the Masada Kedushin says says all seven of them. He just says all seven under the under the uh, the chuppah. Okay. So, Nisuin is uh, therefore Sheva Brachos and symbolic being brought to the home by the uh, Cheder of Yichud, the, the Yichud room. And the Yichud room, uh, they have to stay alone, they have to be witnesses outside the Yichud room to be sure that nobody comes in. And in the Yichud room, uh, the halacha is they're supposed to eat some food. The minhag is, the minhag is, they also exchange gifts. So uh, some say that is when the Kala gives her chasan a talis and a watch and some minhagim. And uh, she gives, uh, I'm sorry, he gives her also uh, various gifts or the like, but that's kind of negotiable. Now, where does the kasuva come into play here, right? Every Jewish marriage has to have a kasuva. 
So first of all, what is a ksuva and what does a ksuva say? So the ksuva has a few different parts. It's a very hard document, really, to uh, read because it's not written in Hebrew. The ksuva is written in Aramaic, and Aramaic is a dialect. It's similar to Hebrew, but it's the language of Gemara, right? You learn Gemara, so you know Aramaic is not exactly Hebrew. In fact, uh, it says angels don't understand Aramaic. Uh, that's what it says. That's why uh, you're not allowed to, when you need the angels to assist you in your tefillos, you don't daven in Aramaic because they don't know what you're saying. And part of why they don't know Aramaic is Aramaic is so close to Hebrew that it confuses them. But there is Chazal saying, Yashares do not recognize the Aramaic, uh, Aramaic language. Yeah. Um, in... I think like in Tachman, when you say that Aramaic stuff, isn't it talking about what the angels would say? Uh, Tachanun during the week? Are you saying? Yeah, I can't remember exactly. So actually it's not, it's not there's nothing in Tachanun that's Aramaic. What you have is during Selichos, if you say Selichos, before Rosh Hashanah or during Aser Shemei I think Chabad does not say it during Aser Shemei Tshuva. I think it's right. But you say it before Rosh Hashanah, right? You say Selichos before Rosh Hashanah. So there, there is some Aramaic. Uh, that uh, refers to what the angels say, but they don't say it in Aramaic. We see we are saying in Aramaic what the angels would say in Hebrew, but they do not say it in Aramaic. Okay, because Umar says hey, the angels do not know Aramaic. Do they know English? Do they know Spanish? So Tosos understands that they know all languages except Aramaic. They know English. They know German. They know French, but they don't know Aramaic. Aramaic stymies them. Right, so the angels would have difficulty learning uh, Gomorrah. They wouldn't, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and the like. Um, so the ksuba is in Aramaic, and sometimes I've seen ksubas that have an English translation to them, but the English translation has nothing to do with the Hebrew. So the English translation makes it a romantic document. I hereby pledge my love and my loyalty to my wife. But that's not what it says, really. So <laughs> what, what does the ksuba say? So the ksuba is in some ways a very business-like document. Uh, the husband declares that he will assume, number one, all of the obligations of a Jewish husband to support his wife, to clothe his wife, to establish a home with his wife. So that's the first thing that it does. Uh, it is the assumption of the obligations of a Jewish husband. The second thing that it does is provide a monetary settlement in the event of divorce or death. In other words, if she becomes divorced or she becomes widowed. Now, the monetary settlement is not very much by modern standards. It is expressed in ancient coinage, which is extinct, and you've got to figure out what it's worth. And that is, if she is a virgin bride... The amount of the kasuva is 200 zuz. I'll describe that in a moment. If she is a non-virgin bride, whether she was married before or even if she's just a non-virgin, the kasuva goes down to 100 zuz. It is half. In the case of divorce and death, the same thing? Yes, same thing. Same thing. So the kasuva is a settlement in the case of divorce or death of either 200 zuz, zuzim, or 100 zuzim. Now that's fine, but what on earth is a zuz? Now you may remember zuz from Chad Gadja, right? You know the song Chad Gadja at the end of the Pesach Seder, which is also Aramaic. 
Dizovin Abba betray Suze, the goat that my father bought for two Zuz. Trey Zuze. Right? So Zuz, right? So Ksuba is a hundred times that amount, two hundred Zuz. So what is a Zuz? Well, there is no coin today that's a Zuz. You can't go to the bank and say, I would like some Zuzum. Right? There's no such currency. Zuzum is a coin that dates from the time of the, uh, well, even after the base of but the time of the Romans. It's a Roman coin, actually. It's not a Jewish coin. And uh, let me give you, uh, well, we could figure it out a little bit, because the amount of money that you have to give for a pigeon haben when you redeem a firstborn is 20 zuz. It's five, five selas, and a sela is four zuz. Right, a sela is a bigger coin, so pigeon haben is five selaim. Five selaim is 20 zuz. Now the chazenish says, this is machmer, but we'll go with this, that 20 zuz for pigeon haben is 100 grams of silver. Meaning, uh, the amount of silver, Zuz was a silver coin. So the amount of silver in 20 Zuz is 100 grams. So that means, in other words, what is one Zuz? One Zuz is five grams of silver. Okay, everyone following the, the numbers here? So if one Zuz is five grams of silver, 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of silver. So you see, it's an interesting point. You're not really pledging a dollar amount. You're basically, not you, but the husband is basically saying, assuming she's a virgin bride, if it's a non-virgin, it's half. The husband is basically saying under the ksuva that in the event of of husband's death or divorce, he will give his wife, or his estate will give his wife, money equal to 1,000 grams of silver. Now, what's interesting is that how much money that is can fluctuate day to day to day to day because it all depends on what is the market value of a gram of silver. It's a strange thing. The ksuba does not say a particular amount of money, but by tying it to zuzim, which is really a weight of silver, it's saying you will give her, I say you, I mean the husband will give his wife uh, 1,000 grams of silver. Now the truth of the matter is, um, silver tends not to be as expensive as gold. And 1,000 grams of silver it depends on, on, on how it fluctuates, but it's no more than $5,000, realistically. So we could realistically say that most of the time, the obligation of the kasuva is not so great. It's only $5,000, and for a non-virgin bride, it would only be $2,500. That's not great. Now, let me point out something. And maybe I need to digress a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between widows and divorcees in terms of halacha. Halacha does not recognize for a divorced woman alimony rights. 
Meaning, once a woman has a get, the husband has no halachic obligation to support her, even if she's poor. The only thing she has a right to is her kasuva, which is relatively small. The kasuva is like five, you know, a thousand grams of silver, let's say five thousand dollars. That's very different than the secular law that creates something that's called alimony. Right? Under most laws, let's say the United States at least, uh, if a woman gets divorced, she will generally be entitled to something called alimony until she reaches, until she remarries. Sounds like almana. Huh? But a grusha in halacha, a grusha in halacha is not entitled to support. A grusha in halacha only gets the kisuva. Now, let's talk, I'll talk about almana in a moment, but I want to finish the picture of grusha. What about child support? Now, the Ksuba does not mention child support. The Ksuba does not talk about child support at all, so that's a separate issue. Does halacha recognize, even though I don't have to pay my wife's needs for food, shelter, and the like, what about my children? Am I mechuyiv to pay child support if the kids are primarily uh, with the wife, if they're young and the like? So this is tricky. The Gemara has a very strange rule that's going to sound really bizarre. The Gemara says, a father is chayiv, Chayav is obligated to support his children until they reach the age of six. Because once they reach the age of six, let them go out and get a job. <laughs> now, you understand that there was a time in history, and in some countries it's still the case, where little kids can actually go out and work. That's what happens in China, in India. It used to be the case in the United States before there was child labor laws. So Rav Moshe Feinstein has a very interesting tshuva. Rav Moshe Feinstein says, so, so there are still bastions even today that will not make a father pay child support for children over six. The bastions, I mean, the, the courts will, but not the bastions. The, the rabbinical courts, I mean, the secular courts will, but the baston will not. But Rav Moshe Feinstein has a very interesting tshuva. And Rav Moshe Feinstein says, since today, children below 18 are actually not allowed to have full-time jobs. And it is not the custom for them to be self-supporting. <clears throat> the halacha of the parent's obligation is going to change with the minog and the practice of the society you're living in. So Rav Moshe Feinstein actually says that a father does have an obligation of child support, according to halacha, until the child is 18. So this is a huge machlokas. According to some, the father's obligation of child support is only until the kid is six. And after the kid is six, father has no obligation. Rav Moshe Feinstein says the father's obligation of child support is until the child is 18, and a basedin should order that as well. Big, big machlokas, yeah. How is he able to say that, though? Because we don't say that about any other thing. We don't say, in our culture, it's the custom to drive on Shabbos, so... No, no, so the different, yeah, no, you're 100% correct. You normally don't uh, use uh, customs <coughs> to break, uh, break halachas, but here, 
when it comes to monetary obligations, what is uh, what does a person agree? And the Ramosha basically says that a person could obligate himself to pay whatever amount of money he wants, right? For example, if he were to sign an agreement to support his children till eighteen, halacha would be would obligate him to keep his agreement, right? That's very clear. So Ramosha says. Minna can take the place of an agreement. So anything that an agreement could be good for, the minna could be the agreement. Now things like driving on Shabbos, where an agreement to drive on Shabbos wouldn't be valid, so a minna cannot do that either. And the minna like becomes the the unstated understanding of the parties. Now I believe that the the, the Alter Rebbe in the Shulchan Aruch has a very interesting twist on this. He says like this. It's very interesting. He says that even if a parent is not obligated to support their child above six, he's obligated to pay for his Jewish education till the child learns the whole Torah. So in a sense, it's so interesting according to that because the major expense in child support for a religious couple is the cost of tuition in the yeshiva day school. So according to the Alter Rebbe, when the Gemara says, above six, you don't have to pay for your uh, kids, that may refer to food and shelter. Even though any parent that doesn't do that is obviously a pretty bad guy, but, but whatever it is, but technically. But the Alter Rebbe says that has nothing to do with Jewish education because a father has an absolute chiv that to give his son a Jewish education, which would include, uh, that's, that, may, that may be for many years, that would include not only learning all of the written Torah, but the basic principles of the oral Torah, the Mishnah, and a lot of Gemara. So that's a very interesting point because that changes, uh, that's a big wrench in the system because uh, even if the father wants to get out of his obligations, he could be obligated to pay for yeshiva. What about for girls? Ah, so that's an interesting question. Now, uh, it is true that technically there is no obligation uh, for girls to learn Torah, uh, even though it's encouraged because we live in a generation of immodesty and secular values. So that, I don't know what the Alter Rebbe would say. In other words, I would think that maybe he would allow the father to go with his basic rule of six, unless you go with Reb Moshe. So it's, it depends. If you follow Reb Moshe's Mahalech, then 18 is going to apply to boys and girls. But if you're going to go with the six-year limit, but then make an exception for Jewish education, that exception would only apply to the boy's side. It would not apply to the girl's side. So the funny thing is that different bastins will come up with different rules on this. But the point I want you to know for marriage ceremony is none of this is addressed in the kasuva. The kasuva only addresses what he owes his wife. It does not address what he owes his children. So don't be confusing. You're not going to find any of this in the kasuva. But in terms of what he owes his wife, the only thing his wife gets is 200 zuz, and if she's a non-virgin, 100 zuz. So that's the equivalent of a paltry $5,000 for a virgin wife and $2,500 for a non-virgin wife. But it all depends on the price of silver. Uh, yeah, did you want? So where does 
prenuptial, how does that fit into um, a prenuptial agreement? Right, I'll, I'll get to it. I, okay. I, first, I first want to go over the ksuba, and then we'll look at how a prenuptial okay. agreement could change, change that. Someone had a, another? That was oh, yeah, yeah, it's a very people good question. People are very into, like, get a halachic prenup. Like, people are very... Yes, 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 that. yes. We'll talk, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that extensively. Uh, so much that you'll, you might get tired of it. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a lot about the halachic uh, prenup. Um, that's primarily for a get, but, but it also involves property and, and alimony and things like that. Now, let's compare this to a widow. Okay? I, in other words, I'm describing... Oh, yeah, one other thing about a divorced woman, though. One other thing that you need to know. That uh, in addition to the ksuba, however, uh, a, a, a divorced woman will certainly get whatever property is in her name. Let's take a very simple example. Husband and wife own a house. Or in Eretzisrael, they own a dira, they own an apartment. Or in America, they own, you know, they own an apartment, too, the condominium or whatever it is. Now, it is in both the husband's name and the wife's name, usually. usually. So, if they get divorced, even though she has no claim against the husband for support, she definitely gets the property in which she's a 50% owner. So don't forget that. So, if, if a house is in both the names of husband and wife, she does have the right to have the house sold, and get 50% of it. That's not in the ksuba either, you see. That's not in the ksuba because the ksuba says, what does the husband owe his wife? So the husband owes his wife only 200 zuz. But if she is a 50% owner of property, she gets her property. Okay, don't confuse it. So in a lot of cases, even if you didn't have a prenuptial agreement, even if you didn't have, even if the only thing the woman had was the paltry kasuba, uh, she would still uh, have uh, a right to a lot of property, if there is property, because she is generally going to be a co-owner. Now, if on the other hand, you had a situation where the home was in only in the name of the husband, she would get nothing of that home. She would get nothing in that home at all. Uh, because it's in the husband's name, and all she gets in the ksuba. Now, let me point out that the ksuba is augmented by two more provisions. Again, I'm talking right now. I'm talking about divorce. When it comes to widow, we'll have a different cheshbon. Number one, when we say that the virgin bride gets two hundred zuz, which is, as they say, a thousand grams of silver, which we'll call just for convenience five thousand dollars. That is what is called ikar kesuva. That is ikar. That is the main sum of the kesuva. In addition, however, there is something called tosefes kesuva. Tosefes kesuva is technically not mandatory. It's an additional amount to which the groom agrees to. And technically that could be any amount he wants or zero amount. But in the Ashkenazic kesuva, it has become standardized. So it's not even negotiated anymore. There's a standard amount. And this is interesting. This is also reflected in a defunct currency. 100 zakuk. I'll, I'll explain the term. Uh, which means the Iker Kasuva is 200 zuz. The Tosefet Kasuva is 100 zakuk. What on earth is a zakuk? 
Well, a zakuk is even more obscure than a zuz. A zuz is a, was a coin in the time of the Romans. And as I say, a zuz represents uh, five grams of silver. And 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of silver, approximately $5,000. That's a zuz. A zakuk is the Hebrew translation of a coin that was used in Germany and Poland in the Middle Ages. Because again, these ksubas were kind of, they date from those times. And a zokuk is actually much more. 100 zokuk? 100, not 200, 100. And for a virgin, it's 50 zokuk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, for a non virgin, it's 50 zokuk. That is, everything is halved. The acre kasuva is 200 zuz for virgin, 100 zuz for non virgin, and the tosefes ksuva is 100 zakuk for virgin and 50 zakuk for non-virgin. Zakuk is a Hebrew term for a medieval coin, Middle Ages coin. Why is there a difference between a virgin and a non-virgin? Yeah, that is, that is a good question. And, uh, and uh, part of it would be that most of the time, not always today, a non-virgin was somebody who was married before. Because that's why she's a non-virgin. So if she was married before, the theory is she got kasuva. She got things from her prior husband that, that she's less needed. Uh, she has less needs for support than a virgin who was never married before. In other words, she's already been taken care of. So the economic need that she would have would tend to be less. Now that doesn't work. That only works if she's a non-virgin because she was married. Uh, if she's a non-virgin just because she's a non-virgin, uh, you know, it, it doesn't fully explain it, but still, the, the halacha was based on the assumption that the non-virgin was usually married before. So a zokuk is much more than a zuz, and the exact ratio is very obscure. How do you translate this into modern money? But a zokuk would tend to be as much as, uh, as 10 zuz. So that would mean 100, one second, uh, 100 zakukim would be, uh, one second, a thousand zuz, or even more than that. One zuz is 10 zakukim. No, the other no, way, the other way. One, one zakuk, zakuk is 10 zuz. So 5,000. Or some say even 100 zuz. So basically, the, the 100 zakukim can be as much as 25 or, or up to $50,000. That's it. So it's interesting. The Iker Kesuva is no more than 5,000, but the 100 zakukim can be between 25 and 50,000. So dollars. 50? Yeah, 50 would be the highest level. $50,000. Dollars, 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 yeah. $500,000 would be for the non-virgin? No, no, uh, the, the computation would be that for the virgin, meaning the problem is the, the relationship between zakuk and zuz is unknown. So it could range between 25 and 50. So whatever number it is for the virgin, the non-virgin would be half. So if the range for a virgin is between 25 and 50, the non-virgin is 12,525. You see, when I say between 25 and 50, I mean for the virgin, there's uncertainty how many zuzim are zakuk. No, no, he couldn't choose. This would have to go to a base, meaning different, but they did have different opinions about this. Um, it's, it's not, it's not pleasure. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds kind of odd, but I'll explain why we're not more definite on this. this. This is where the prenuptial comes in. 
In other words, if a woman wants to collect her kasuva, the bottom line is, it's not so clear how much money she gets because uh, we have to convert the zuz into dollars or shekels, which that's easier to do. And then we have to convert the zakuk into dollars or shekels. And that's much more speculative because we're not really sure the, uh, exactly of how many zuzim would a zokuk be, and different opinions go in different ways. But be it as it may, that is called the Tosefes Ksuva. Now, the point I want to make about the Tosefes Ksuva is that according to the strict halacha, the husband doesn't have to agree to any Tosefes Ksuva. Tosefes Ksuva, by definition, means an optional add-on to the chiyav of the Ksuva. Now, if it's optional... That means husbands could say, I don't want a Tosefes Ksuva, I just want the 200 Zuz. However, today, that never, ever, ever happens because today, the optional Tosefet Ksuva has now become a standardized clause that is never going to be deleted. So it's a kind of a funny thing that that which was meant to be optional and discretionary has now become part of the official text of the Ksuba, but it's phrased in a very obscure way, 100 zakuk for the virgin and, two, uh, and 50 zakuk for the non-virgin. So they now, really can't refuse it? Uh, you cannot, well, well, halachically you could, but if the, if, I can tell you this, if a chassan would say, I refuse it, the Masada Kedushin would not conduct the wedding. He would basically, I mean, I, I just say, I, I mean, I've never confronted this, but Masada is a year Meshugana. Every Jewish uh, man agrees to this. I'm not going to marry you when you don't agree to it. So it's one of those things where, according to halacha, it is absolutely discretionary. There is no halacha that the husband has to agree to a Tosefis Ksuva. Uh, there could be a zero Tosefes Ksuva. I have to agree to 200 Zuz because that's the mandatory Ksuva amount. I don't have to agree to anything else. But it ain't going to happen that he's not going to... I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the Ksuva. It's always going to be in there. Now, there is a third monetary amount in the Ksuva as well. Okay, so Iker Ketuva, Tosefet Ksuva. Then... There is something called nidunya. Now, nidunya, that's a, a bit of an awkward word. Nidunya is an Aramaic term that means dowry. Dowry refers to the property that a woman brought into a marriage. She could have brought in a car, she could have brought in an apartment, uh, she could have brought in whatever her clothing you know, whatever she brings in, her, her, her bank accounts and the like, right? All of that is nidunya. When a woman gets divorced, she is entitled to a return of all property she brought into the marriage. This is not just a prenup. This is in the ksuva itself. She is entitled to a return of all property that she brought into the marriage. But what's interesting is she's only entitled to its return in terms of what's left. I mean, let me give you, let me give you a concrete example. 
Let's say she brought a bank account in, which has $10,000. But by the time they get divorced, the, the bank account is zero. Husband does not have to kick in $10,000. In other words, she gets what's ever left. So if she brought in an apartment building, let's say she owned a building and they were getting rent. So upon divorce, she gets back that building. Upon divorce, she gets her car back. But her car might, no, might not be that, no. But whatever is, go- whatever is gone, is gone. But she gets back the Nidunya. Now, in the olden days, this was an amount that depended on what she brought in. If she brought in a lot, they would put in a lot. If she brought in a little, she put in a little. If she brought in nothing, there would be nothing in that third group. But the Minag in Europe, this goes back 500 years, 500 years, was that we assign an amount for Nidunya whether she brought it in or didn't bring it in. Meaning we assume, we make the assumption she brought in X amount of Nidunya that she is entitled to get back. Uh, and this benefits poor women who didn't bring anything in, but we, we assume they brought it in. And interestingly, that is also 100 zakuk for a virgin and 50 zakuk for a non-virgin, which means every woman has a dowry claim for 100 zakuk. Now, when I say every woman, every virgin woman for 100 zakuk. Now, in truth, What if the woman brought in more? So in truth, she should ask for a higher amount. That she should ask for. Because the 100 zakuk is a guaranteed minimum. Okay, so this is a little confusing. uh, But the point I want you to understand is there are four things the ksuva does. The first thing the ksuva... so, so, So number one, there's nothing about romance here. Although there is something indirectly I'll get to. The first thing the ksuva does is I, as a husband, obligate myself to support my wife for the duration of the marriage the way Jewish men are supposed to do so. Those are obligations during the marriage. Second thing is called Iker Kesuva. In the event of divorce or, or death, I will give, or my estate will give my wife, 200 zuz in the event of a virgin, and 100 zoos in the event of a non-virgin, which is the amount of $5,000. Second monetary amount is an optional clause, which today becomes standard, called Tosefet Kesuva, which today is standardized at 100 zakuk, which is anywhere between twenty-five dollars and $50,000. And for a non-virgin, it's halved. Uh, and that is called Tosefes Kasuva. And the third is her claim for the property she brought into the marriage, that she brought into the marriage, which is called Nidunya. And today, although according to the halacha, that should be tailor-made for each situation, but today it is standardized, once again, at 100 zakuk. So, so for a virgin, that actually means the sum total that she's entitled to get when she is divorced is 200 zakuk plus 200 zuzim.
Okay, uh, you see how you get that breakdown? 200 Zuzim Iker Kasuva, 100 Zakuk Tosefes Kasuva, 100 Zakuk Nadunya. For a virgin, it is 100 Zuz uh, uh, Iker Kasuva, 50 Zakuk Tosefes Kasuva, 50 Zakuk Nidunya. Okay? By the way, I, I want to stand corrected on something. I, I, I misspoke. Uh, when I talked about Nidunya, I mentioned if it gets depleted, uh, she only gets what's left. Uh, that, that's not Emma's. Uh, for this, for the Nidunya, the husband is obligated to give her the value of what she brought in. So if she brought in, yeah, I want to correct myself because, uh, you know, if it would just be the small group, you know, so maybe sometimes I don't correct every mistake. I try to, I try to, but since this goes out, I need to be extra careful. Uh, the nadunya that a woman brings in, she is entitled to a guarantee of the amount she brought in. So if a woman brought in $10,000, she's entitled to $10,000. Now, the nadunya of a kasuva is odd because it standardizes the amount, 100 zakat. But as I said a few moments ago, that helps women who brought in less than that. That even if they brought in less, this is what you give them. But if a woman did bring in more, the kasuba should actually reflect. And she it should, can. She, and it can. She should talk to the rabbi uh, that the kasuba should reflect that greater, greater amount of what she brought in uh, to the marriage. So he okay? has to pay her back? What, he has to pay her back. She That's correct. Uh, she brought in a car. She brought in... Uh, uh, money, money in a bank account. Uh, she brought in a building. So even if the building depreciated, because real estate sometimes goes down, he has to pay her the value. So if the building that she brought in was worth a half a million dollars, and at the time of the divorce, it's only worth 250, he can't just give her the building. He has to actually give her $500,000. Yeah? Is there any, um, what if a woman wants to do a separate prenup that's just a legal prenup um, yes, I'll, I'll, get, okay. I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to that. Now, let me just explain something. This is what's going to happen with a grusha. So a divorced woman is entitled to these three claims under the kasuva. She's entitled to Iker kasuva. She's entitled to Tosefes kasuva. She's entitled to return of the dowry. Uh, and that is in the kasuva. All three are in the kasuva. Uh, child support is not mentioned in the kasuva. But as I indicated, according to the Gemara, the obligation of a father to support a child only goes until the child is six. Rav Moshe Feinstein said the prevailing societal minog has changed it to 18. And the Alter Rebbe's Chiddush was that even if you're going with six, that does not apply to Jewish education, which the father does have an obligation, at least for the male uh, children, until they have learned the whole written Torah and the major parts of the oral tour, which could be a long time, perhaps even after 18. Uh, yeah? Could you explain why was the, what's the need for the Tosefes Kasuva? Why was officialized? Why do you need like an optional? Well, well, the reason was that, uh, you know, it, it was recognized that the Ikar Kasuva was not a lot of money, even in the time of Talmudic times. So people would be encouraged as a goodwill gesture to agree to pay more money to, to help the woman uh, in the case of a divorce or being widowed or, or the like. So really it was a goodwill, a goodwill gesture. 
But today, it's become like uh, a chiv. It's become an obligation. Yeah? What if the husband doesn't have the money? Oh, okay. So now, let me mention the final part of the ksuba. Before I get to the widow, let me get to the final part. The final part is, how is a ksuba enforced according to halacha? So what, what's interesting is, uh, the kasuva is a lien. Uh, this, is a, this is an English term. L i e n. It is a lien or a mortgage on all of his property. And the kasuva even says, even the shirt on his back. That <laughs> actually says, which means to say, the way a kasuva is enforced if a man doesn't pay or the man died, is that all of his property can be taken and liquidated in order to pay the ksuva obligation. So even if that leaves the children with nothing at all, her ksuva rights are more important than the inheritance rights of children. Now, the thing is, though, if you think about it, okay, but that only works if he has property. (laughs) In other words, whatever property he has can be taken and liquidated for the payment of the ksuva. And that's true, even the shirt on his back. The shirt can be taken off his back and sold, although there's not a great market for used shirts, uh, to pay off the ksuba. But if he doesn't have property, what are you going to do? So, so, well, not his shirt, but I say, yeah, he doesn't have enough property to pay off the ksuba. So you're right, it's like anything else. I mean, essentially, a woman with a ksuba is a creditor, like anyone else. If <laughs> a creditor is entitled to be paid, but if, a cred- if, the, if the borrower doesn't have any money, what can the creditor do, right? So a, a woman could indeed be in a, in a bad place. Just because she has a ksuba, that is not the same as saying she will be able to get paid. Are That's the witnesses at all responsible? No, they, they are not. They are not. Now, sometimes, we don't do this today that much, but in the time of the Gemara, uh, a woman sometimes got a, a, a guarantor for a ksuba. Oh. Uh, this is called an arev, meaning to say... Uh, there would be an extra person that would say, if the husband doesn't pay, you can go after me. This is called an arev, a guarantor. Just like lenders, right? Sometimes I might only lend you money if you get me a guarantor. So according to halacha, a woman could ask for this. But as I say, you know, uh, we tend to... uh, not do this at weddings, you know. It's gonna, you know, if the woman says, uh, "Where's the arif?" The rabbi's gonna look at the woman, right? So certain things you just don't do today. So if the husband says, "I don't want to do tosefet ksuva," well, he has the right to say that, but the rabbi's gonna look at him as crazy. And if the woman says, "Where's the guarantor?" She has the right to ask for that too, but too, no, looks a little, looks a little funny. I, I think that, I, I have not seen that, but there's absolutely no reason. I mean, there's no logic why she should be forced to accept less than she brought in. That, that honestly makes no sense to me. Uh, if she brought in a half a million dollars of Nadunya and and uh, the Ksuva only says she gets back 50000 I see no reason why she shouldn't have the right to change that. I've never seen it. I have to admit to you, I have not seen it. But I don't think that's uh, an illogical thing. But, but however, I, I'm going to now add something why, why this is not done at weddings. Why don't you see this at weddings? And that is the following. Huh? Yeah, you don't see the guarantor. You don't, you don't see any of these things. But let me explain why that's so. And that is, 
And in fact, you can see that the Ksuba is full of questions. We don't even know exactly what the amounts are, right? Between 25 and 50. I mean, that's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. Well, which is it? The short answer is, in the real world of life, it is very, very, very rare that a woman enforces her ksuba. And what is usually done is there is either a prenuptial agreement before they're married about what's going to happen in the event of divorce, or, or even more different, even if they don't have a prenuptial agreement, when they get divorced, they will have a divorce agreement, meaning to say they negotiate an agreement. And that agreement actually replaces the ksuba. And according to halacha, you're allowed to do that because when it comes to money, when it comes to money, they can make whatever agreements they want to make. So usually, the way this works is not by changing the text of the ksuba. The ksuba remains constant. So if a woman brought in a lot of, a lot of nidunya, instead of changing the ksuba, the ksuba will still say 100 zokok because that's what the ksuba says but they'll have like a divorce agreement that will say, you will give me back all that I brought in. So I can tell you that in the real world, uh, in a, you just go to, a, ask, ask a basin, ask a rabbinical court, how many times has a woman gone to basin to enforce her rights under a kasuva? They will actually tell you it's very uncommon. Now again, huh? Could she? Like, she could. Yes, yeah, she could. Yeah, she absolutely could. Uh, if she didn't have a prenup, or they, or they haven't, if they, in other words, if they haven't come to a divorce agreement, they don't have a prenup, and they haven't been able to negotiate right. for a divorce agreement, she absolutely has the right to to enforce her ksuba. Did you, did you say a divorce agreement could be written into the ksuba? No, I did not say that. I did okay. not say that. Uh, for care, among religious people at least, yeah. uh, it is not written in the ksuba. It is a separate document. Which is, but again, I want to point out, it's halakhically valid because you, you understand this idea that money is different than other parts of halakha. You know, you can't make an agreement to violate Shabbos. You can't make an agreement to break kashras. Those agreements are, are just not, not valid. But when it comes to how much money I pay you and how much money you pay me, that's called mamon, that's called property money. Halacha does say they could make uh, whatever agreement they want to make. So even though they're replacing the ksuba with this, these agreements, that is mutter because that is a question of money, question of property. Okay, so don't confuse it. You can't make agreements on many, many things. The Torah says the halacha is the halacha. But on, on who, how much money you're going to pay your wife or how much money the wife is going to take, that could be an agreement. So it's relatively rare. So ksuva is kind of, the way it works today is, it's the last ditch leverage that a woman has in negotiating for a, a better divorce agreement. In other words, she basically says, hey, you know, we should agree to this and this and this, or else... I'll hit you with the I'll hit you with the ksuba. So the ksuba is not what she actually is going to be enforcing, but the ksuba is the threat that she has in order to negotiate a divorce agreement. I mean, yeah. If it's a one-time fee, it's not that much money. 
Well, let, let's think about this. It, it, it might very well be because it's not that much money, but but still, uh, for a for, for a middle class person, it could be quite a lot of money because it could be as much as uh, over a hundred thousand dollars. Right? If, if if you say if the Tosefet Kesuva of a hundred zakuk is fifty thousand, and that is also the Nedunya of fifty thousand, that's already a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, the Iker Kesuva is five thousand dollars, one hundred five thousand dollars. Uh, well, and she has the right, and when she enforces the coup, she can demand immediate liquidation of property. Right. She, you know, she, doesn't, she does not have to agree to an installment plan. Right. So she can basically say, either you agree to pay me over 10 years, you know, something, which might be a lot more money than this, or I'm going to claim my $105,000 right now and get your house sold. Right? So the difference is the ksuva might be less than the prenup, or the divorce agreement. But in a divorce agreement, it'll be installments over a long period of time. The ksuba, she has the right to say, right now. Right. But can she say, I want the ksuba, but I don't care if it's like monthly? Oh, she can agree to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, but she can agree to that. Yeah, of course she can agree to that. But she doesn't have to agree to that. So she might tell the husband like this. She might say, this gives you an example. She might say, if you agree to give me $150 a month for 10 years, I will forego enforcing the ksuva. Now, if you think about it, $150 a month over 10 years is a lot more than the ksuva. But the husband can afford that. He can afford $150 a month over 10 years. He can't afford being hit with $105,000. $5,000 right now. So you, you see how negotiation... I mean, I, I know that uh, this takes away some of the religious kedusha of the ksuva. I, I realize mm-hmm. this. But the ksuva is used in negotiation. And this is legitimate. I mean, uh, you know, the woman is entitled to $105,000. She can basically say, if you agree to something fair for me, I will not press this $105,000 claim. Okay, so that's why, again, what I'm explaining is, this is why there is like uncertainty how much a ksuva is, because it's very rare that a basin actually has to determine the exact amount of a ksuva. Because usually what happens is, to get out of the uncertainties, they come to some, either, either they have a prenuptial agreement or a post, you know, post-divorce agreement, where they try to uh, work, it, uh, work it out. Okay, so that's why a basin almost never has to figure out exactly what iksuva is, and we're still working with zakuk and zuz and all of these strange things. Now, interestingly enough, the Sephardic kesuva is a little different than the Ashkenazic kesuva. Uh, it has these same three elements: it has ikur kesuva, tosefet kesuva, and uh, nedunya. But in the case of nedunya, it actually monetizes it, meaning it'll, it'll express it in terms of shkalim, or dollars. So that makes it much easier. In other words, you know exactly, the woman knows exactly what uh, she's going to get. And there's something else in Sephardic Subas that are very, very interesting. Um, I don't know how many uh, chasnas you've gone through, how many Sephardic chasnas you've gone through, uh, but you'll notice it's a much longer Subas. They, they're reading all sorts of stuff. And what they're reading is the chassan takes an oath, a shavua, that he's not going to marry another wife. And if he marries another wife, he will immediately divorce the first, the first wife. wife and pay her a million dollars of ksuba. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, 
They put it in. Wait, he divorces her and then decides to marry someone else? Or no, no. If he marries... Let me explain the background here. Um, the, the, Torah prohib- the Torah permits a man to have more than one wife. That's called polygamy. The Torah allows polygamy. Right? We see it uh, by Yaakov Avinu. Right? Yaakov Avinu was a bigamist. Right? Bigamy, polygamy is essentially the same thing. You marry more than one wife. Polygamy was never common. It was never common, but it was permitted. It was permitted. Now, when did polygamy become forbidden for Jews? Pretty late. It became prohibited in the 10 hundreds, after the Gemara, 10 hundreds, by an edict of a great, great leader of uh, Ashkenazic Jewry. His name was Rabbeinu Gershom, Gershom ben Yehuda. He was the Rebbe of the Rebbe of Rashi. He's before Rashi. And he made, he and his basin made an edict that uh, Jews are not allowed to marry more than one wife. And he, he declared anyone that violates this edict is excommunicated from the Jewish people. This is called cherem. Cherem means the excommunication of Rabbeinu Gershom. Okay. Now, Rabbeinu Gershom's authority was only over Ashkenazic Jewry. What do I mean by Ashkenazic Jewry? The Jews who lived in Germany, Poland, Russia, and their descendants. These are Ashkenazim, including Hasidim. Hasidim come from those countries. Svardim, coming from North Africa, from Spain, from Syria, from Turkey, from Iraq, were never Makabel, the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom. And therefore, technically, Svardim were permitted to marry more than one wife. But a lot of uh, parents of the Kala didn't want that to happen. So what they did was, they did what you might call, they privatized Rabbeinu Gershom's enactment by making a clause in the Ksuva that the Chassan swears he will not marry another wife. And if he does so, he will have to pay my daughter a real, real expensive ksuba. Now, you understand why Ashkenazim don't have that. Ashkenazim don't have that in their ksuba because there was no reason. Ashkenazim couldn't marry another wife anyway. Svardim put it in as a substitute for their not having the cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom. And that's why a Sephardi Ketuvah, not all of them, but some of them will have that clause which does not appear in an Ashkenazi Ketuvah. Right? So I call it the privatization of the Cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom, meaning uh, Sephardim don't have the Cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom, but they incorporate it via the Ketuvah as a private obligation not to marry another wife, and if you do so, uh, there'll be a huge knas, a huge punishment of a million dollar ksuba. By the way, I think the Rabbanon has a rule in Israel that a ksuba cannot be more than a million dollars. That's why you, you couldn't make it five million. And actually say, this is the maximum we'll allow a ksuba to be. Yeah. Uh, it just sounds funny that the thing that's halakhically required is not followed, and we follow, like, as in the ksuba is not followed, and we follow, like, something else instead. Like, yeah. Usually if you do something so the, 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 the theory behind it is this. The theory behind it is this. The ksuva is halakhically required, of course it is, but it was for the benefit of the woman. It was designed to give a woman 
protection in the event of divorce. So the ksuva is always there as her guaranteed protection. But if she is able to negotiate for something better, we're not going to discourage it because ultimately it's for her benefit. So if she doesn't like what the husband is offering, she can always say, I'm going to go with the ksuva. But if she could get something better uh, by saying, you know, if you agree to pay me for 10 years, I'll be mochel, I'll waive the ksuva. So the chachamim are not going to discourage it. In other words, essentially what, they did, what they've done is they've created a guaranteed minimum standard for her, but then she's free to try to get something that would help her more. So in money, that's a legitimate thing because the halacha is not like a stam halacha like Shabbos or Kashrus or Tefillin. The halacha is to give a divorced woman protection. So this is her minimum. But then she's able to try to go for more. Right? I, I, I don't mean to, by saying go for more, I don't mean to say that anybody should be selfish here. The issue is not be greedy and get as much as you can get. I mean, people have needs. I mean, I, I mean people are greedy. People are greedy and people try to cheat on both sides of the equation. That's life and that's human beings. But I'm not suggesting that that's what Chazal wanted and that's not what the Torah wanted. The Torah wanted each person to see what they really, really need. So the ksuva is their minimum, but the ksuva may not be the right thing for every single person. So by giving a woman the minimum, she now has the ability to negotiate, work out, mediate something that's going to be fairer for her. Because the halacha is just to protect them, to give the woman money in case, and then we use the ksuba as... That's correct, that's correct, that's correct. Because, uh, because the ksuba is rabbinic, it's not a Torah requirement. And the rabbinic enactment was to give divorced or widowed women certain economic protection. But we recognize that protection may be uh, defective, may be not right for individual cases. We can't determine the right amount in every single case. But this way, there's a leverage, there's a negotiation uh, for it. Yeah. Okay. There's actually a, a very big disadvantage potentially to a man if a woman comes in with a lot of money and then spends most of it, and then he's, he's on the hook for what... Yes, uh, that, that, that is correct. Uh, and, but under those circumstances, uh, well, that's going to be an interesting question. Uh, if, if, if she was the one that controlled that money, it may be that that's not called nedunya. Nedunya basically means she brought it in and gave it to him. Ah, okay. Meaning if she kept it as a separate asset, that would not be a Nadunya obligation, right? Nadunya is she brought something for him to use in his business or whatever it is, he then becomes accountable to return it. Now let me just say a few words about polygamy for a moment. So according to what I just said, polygamy is forbidden for Ashkenaz Jews, but it's permitted for Sephardic Jews. So is that even today? I mean, if somebody is uh, Yemenite or somebody is uh, Iraqi or somebody is Syrian, are they allowed to have more than one wife? Well, first of all, let me point out that polygamy is illegal by secular laws. So in the United States, it absolutely is a crime. You will go to jail, or not you, but the man will go to jail for polygamy. And polygamy is also illegal in the state of Israel. So if somebody were to try to have two wives, they could be arrested. But that itself doesn't answer the halachic question. Okay, they'll get arrested, whatever it will be. But what does halacha say about a Sephardi? So when Israel passed a law banning polygamy, 
they actually contained a grandfather clause. They actually said, any Sephardi who came to Israel with more than one wife is allowed to stay with his wives, but no new polygamies could take place. So I don't know if there's anyone alive today that still had two wives, but in the 1950s and early 1960s, there were Yemenites who came with more than one wife, and they were permitted to have more than one wife because they had married Beheter in Yemen. Uh, but what about halacha today? If a Sephardi wants to have two wives, is that permitted? So in 1948, when the chief rabbinate was established, there was a heskim, there was an agreement between the Ashkenazi chief rabbi and the Sephardi chief rabbi that Sephardim would no longer practice polygamy. But the question is, is that halachically valid? Does, does a Sephardic rabbi have the right to take away that sechut from Sephardim? So Avadji Yosef later actually said that that agreement was not halachically valid. The, the agreement of the rabbanuts to give up Sephardic polygamy was not halachically valid. And his position was that Sephardim could practice polygamy even today, except for the fact that the Knesset made it a, made it a crime. Okay, so yeah. What's the practical halacha if an Ashkenazi community somebody finds out that um, like somebody has two wives? Yeah. Okay, so let me let me point out that uh, even if there's a ban of Rabbeinu Gershom, that does not mean the marriage is invalid. Meaning, uh, if I am married to two women, I am married to two women. Now the halacha is I will be ordered by a basin to give, one of, give the second woman a divorce. But I have to give her a guess. The marriage is not null and void. You see what I'm saying? In other words, a polygamous marriage is a kedushin al pi halacha, and you need a get. So practically, he's not like, excommunicated. Uh, well, yeah, he is excommunicated. Oh, are you, are you asking me how an excommunication? Well, well, technically, he is excommunicated, yeah. He is excommunicated until... He divorces the second wife. So what if that's not? What if he's not excommunicated? Yeah. Well, he's still sitting. You know what can I tell you? Uh, because we live in Gullah, so sometimes uh, the excommunications are not so strong. But he is doing an avera, and he should be shunned. He should not be allowed in a show, and a light. Now there is a swara, by the way, that if the witnesses to the second marriage knew that it was polygamous. They are treated as sinners because they are participating in violating Rabbeinu Gershom's ban, and that would make the second marriage not valid because they're not, it's as if they're desecrating Shabbos. In other words, I, I had said a moment ago that even a polygamous marriage is still a valid marriage, but that might only be the case if the witnesses didn't know it was polygamous. But then if they knew it was polygamous, then it's not a marriage, and she doesn't need a get, and He's only married to the first wife. But then, she... no, there's no. Was... Okay. Then is the second woman committing adultery? Because she's like living with a married man. Oh, okay. So according to the Torah, she's not because see, this is interesting. Right. Because because since a man is allowed to have two husbands, uh, I'm sorry. Since a man is allowed to have two wives, <laughs> right. So by definition, uh, when she's living with the husband, we don't treat it as adultery to the first wife. 
Right, but if the wit- if the second witnesses technically aren't. Oh, so in other words, if she's not married, no, no. So the answer is, uh, even though he's living with a woman that he's not married to, and he's married to another woman, that is not the issue of adultery. Okay. The issue of adultery is only if the married woman is with another man, uh-huh. not if a married man is with a, a single woman. So even that would not make it adultery. It wouldn't be a mamzer, for example. Right. If a married man has a child from a woman that he's having an affair with, that kid is not a mobster. Right. Okay, it's only if the married woman uh, has an affair that the child will be a mobster. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, yeah. Can I just jump back? Of course, yeah. Um, can you just clarify again, like, when you're halakhically married, like, what makes you halakhically married? Okay, what makes you halakhically married is, uh, the marriage itself, is when a man, a Jewish man, gives a woman an object of value, typically a ring, but it doesn't have to be a ring. It could be a pen or a bubble gum or whatever it is, and, uh, and declares that I am marrying you with this, uh, with this uh, object in the presence of two kosher halachic witnesses. And when she accepts it with that understanding, she is now a married woman. And two kosher halachic witnesses are... So kosher halachic witnesses are... Two men, bar mitzvah, not related to each other or to the chassan or the kala, halachically observant. Mm. Right. So, they're not halachically then they are not married. Even though he went through the whole ceremony and she accepted the ring, and even if they both say, we think we're married, they're, they're not halachically married because without witnesses, there is no validity to a marriage. And does that affect the child? No, no. So that's a very important point. So technically, a child that is born from that union is born out of wedlock. Yeah, to be sure. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to know is, in Judaism, there is no disability to being born out of wedlock. So a child who is born from a non-halachic marriage has no stigma whatsoever. Right? The concept of mamzer only applies to a child born from adultery or incest, God forbid. Uh, but a child born from a non-halachic marriage is a totally kosher, regular Jew. Okay. So those so, two people yeah. would be, could get remarried? Yes, they can. And, and in fact, that's, that's what we would advise. Uh, we, we advise people who mm-hmm. are interested in becoming more observant that if they were not married halachically, we will marry them halachically. Mm-hmm. Right? We'll get a minion and we'll we'll do the marriage ceremony. You see? Yeah. Where does the I don't know if it's custom or halacha or what of having your wedding ring be a plain silver ring? Okay, so this is all right, so now we get to Inyanim of Minog. So let me explain this. In, in terms of strict halacha, the requirement is that the chasan give the kala something of value. Doesn't have to be a ring, it could be a coin, it could be a pen. It could be a piece of bubble gum. It could be a chocolate bar. Uh, there's nothing about a ring at all, uh, as far as the Gemara is concerned. It just has to be worth a pruta, which is like a penny. It has to be worth a penny. Right? That's all it has to be worth, right? That's why they ask. Under the chuppah, they always ask the witnesses. They show them the ring, and the Masada Kedushan says, can you testify this is worth a penny? And we always say, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Hopefully, hopefully. You can use a cracker. A cracker. They used to have Cracker Jack. Or they still make Cracker Jack? I don't know. Well, but they used to have these, these plastic rings in the Cracker Jack packages. Uh, whatever. Now, the custom of using a ring is already a, much, a little later. 
and it symbolizes the notion of a circle uh, in which uh, life has difficult times, but there's a circle in which Hashem brings bracha as well. And the notion of not having engraving is the following reason, interestingly enough. And that is that a, a wedding ring, a wedding band, should be plain. It should not have engravings on it. Why is it circle again? No, because the circle represents the idea that in life there are difficulties, but the circle turns, so the difficult times will become good times, meaning life is a circle. It doesn't just remain at one place. And that gives a person strength uh, not to be despondent when, when life is tough. But the reason why a wedding band, uh, a wedding ring that the Chikala wears, the engagement ring can be anything, but the wedding ring should be plain, either silver or gold, that's another machlokas, but it shouldn't have a jewel, it shouldn't have, you don't, you don't have a, the wedding ring does not have a jewel and it does not have engraving because there's a fear that with the engraving or the jewel, the kala may be deceived into thinking it's more expensive than it is when you have extra embellishments. And if a kala thinks she's getting a $1,000 ring when it's only 500, the condition is not valid because she accepted it under false pretenses. So we want to make the ring as unadorned as possible so she shouldn't exaggerate its value by these extra features that are there. Now, Bidiyabit, if you ask me, would it be a kosher wedding if, if, if I gave her my kala a diamond ring under the chuppah? It would be kosher. I mean, the wedding would be kosher. But l'chatzchila, we do not, we only have a plain wedding band. Uh, actually, gold is considered to be better than silver because gold represents uh, rachamim, whatever, different types of Kabbalistic cheshbonos there. But in terms of the halacha, it just has to be worth a penny. Yeah. Uh, question. So I remember hearing somewhere that it, it's the exchange of, of gift, the ketubah, and the yichudim. So you're saying to be married, it's, it's just the ring and the ketubah. That's correct. The kesuva is not a condition for the marriage. This is very interesting. The kesuva is an obligation in a marriage, but it's not what makes them married. Technically speaking, we are married as soon as I give her the ring, even if we didn't yet sign the ksuba. Although usually we do sign the ksuba first. But the ksuba is not what makes a Jewish marriage. On the other hand, it is, is, is also true that husband and wife are not allowed to live together unless they have a ksuba and unless the woman knows where the ksuba is. So if a woman loses her ksuba, they must immediately go to a, a rabbi and draw up a replacement ksuva with witnesses. Okay, so a woman, she doesn't have to have the ksuva on her person. Uh, if they go on vacation, they can leave the ksuva at home, although some people do take it, but she has to know where it is. She knows it's in the drawer, whatever it is, the safe deposit box, wherever they want to keep it. Mm-hmm. Okay? When Israel made the law that anyone who comes in with two wives can stay married, was that specifically for Sardim or... Anyone. No, no, no. Well, well no, no. It was only for Sparta, meaning anyone who was permitted halachically to have two wives could stay married. It did not refer to bigamists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if somebody violated the Chedim Rebbeinu Gershom, then they were not allowed to stay married to their, to their second wife. Okay, so this is kind of... Uh, so um, I hope you understand what a ksuba is a little bit more. Uh, and I know it's a little disappointing uh, that the ksuba is not actually collected. It's used as the basis for negotiation. Uh, and also people sometimes say, oh, the ksuba is so unromantic, it's so businesslike, and money, money. 
and the like. But there are in the Ksuba little bit of hints about something more than that. Uh, because it says, I will honor and cherish my wife as well as support her. Now it's not, it doesn't make a big deal about it, but those words are very, very beautiful and very important. That the issue of a husband is not just to support his wife in a physical sense, but to honor her and to cherish her. And indeed, the Gemara says very beautifully that the relationship of a husband to a wife, ohava kigufa, he shall love her like he loves his own body, umechabda, and he should honor her, yoser migufa, more than his own body. And, you know, people have all sorts of claims, oh, Judaism is anti-women, and this and that, all of the different things. But one should always remember what our Chachamim teach us about the, the attitude that a husband must have towards his wife, to uh, love her as much as he loves himself at least, and to honor her even more than he honors himself. And that should be the guiding principle. Do people always live up to that? No, they don't. Okay? We're not... We're, uh, no, they say, don't blame Judaism for Jews. <laughs> Meaning, uh, Jewish, the behavior of Jews is not always what Judaism says. But Judaism does have a very, very high and noble standard about this. Yeah. So, like, for Torah scholars that study all day long, yeah. how does that apply to their clothing and, and housing and feeding their wives? Well, 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 well that, okay, that's a very good point. Uh, under the Kesuba, the wife has the right to say any time she wants, go out and get a job and support me. So that means a, a Torah scholar who's in Kolel is only doing so because his wife has given him permission to do so. And that means he has to have a tremendous amount of gratitude and appreciation because she is doing something that she is not obligated to do, but she's doing something because she sees it as making a better home, which you know in many cases it will, but it's all up to her. She could just say, time to go to work. And uh, the husband will be told, fulfill your obligations under the ksuba. That is your obligation. 100%. And then like, with the court, like if he said no? She could go to Basin, and the Basin will order him. Okay. Will he listen to the Basin? That's a general right, problem. Yeah, a Basin will order him to, a Basin will order him to, to, support, his to support his wife. Or else, Tell either well they'll basically say support her or give her a get you cannot uh, you know that's that's your choice you want to stay married you must support your wife. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people point well not a lot of people point to like the inequality between men and women because of that but actually the woman has the choice. It's the woman's choice, and again it, uh, you know I mean this is a controversial issue. Uh, it is a very noble choice for a woman to say mm -hmm. I will uh, bring in so my husband could learn Torah. Uh, but it's not, it's not the right choice for everybody. It's, it's a difficult thing because uh, if it uh, is bad for the family, you know, again, you, you see it's a big problem. If a woman is going to be so involved in working outside of the house, then who's going to take care of the children? And, you know, other, you're going to have to get babysitters and other people and sometimes even non-Jews. <coughs> right? So it's not a push thing. In other words, some, some might say better for husband to work and wife to take care of the family than to have a situation where wife is forced to work, and the children are entrusted to outsiders. So this is not a simple thing. In other words, this is not a zero, meaning there are advantages and disadvantages 
in every type of course of action. So one has to think about this very, very carefully. And that's why there's a little bit of a distortion. Again, I, I don't know about what you're doing in my notes, but in some of the seminaries, they actually tell the girls, you can only marry a person uh, if he's going to learn full-time in Kolel. Uh, I mean, I, I know a case, I mean, to me this was absurd. There was a shidduch proposed to a girl uh, with a dentist, a dentist, a guy that has a good job, who literally, uh, like, only works four hours a day, and he learns Torah eight hours a day. Imagine this, he gives up a lot of money. He works four hours a day as a dentist, and he learns uh, eight hours a day. To me, that's a dream shidduch, a dream catch. <laughs> and she was told by her teachers in seminary, don't settle for second rate. Look for full time. Um, I don't know. I, th- I, think, I think there's something a little crazy about that, where you have a person who is working, fulfilling his obligations under the Ksuva, and a person who obviously is very, very connected to It's one thing to say, oh, uh, he learns once a week, you know, he goes to a shir once a week. Okay, that's, that might be settling, because Torah should be more than, like, once a week, I learn for half an hour. But someone learns eight hours a day. That is full time. That's that, my full time. That's, that's, yeah, that, that is really, really, really pretty good. So sometimes I think they push the full time colo thing to a, a bit of an extreme that's not really, uh, you know, not really necessary and it may be counterproductive. And the truth of the matter is, uh, different women need different things. I mean, some women can live on bread, bread and water. And some can't, and you know, a uh, husband has to pay attention to that. A husband can't uh, impose a bread and water standard on someone that needs to have a salad as well. You know, you know. So uh, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta look at the, you gotta look at the total picture here. Okay. Alrighty. So you all take care, and we'll see you, I Thank guess, you next uh, next Sunday. Much. Okay. Okay. Thank you.